All right. Welcome, everybody, to uh, Rationalism and Mysticism class number four. So I know that that sounds a little scary if you haven't been here last week or the previous weeks, but don't worry about it because I'll do a, a recap on some of the stuff we've discussed. Um, the first couple of weeks, we did uh, more general topics regarding rationalism and mysticism, and uh, we gave a few different uh, interesting stories that if you want, you could actually listen to the prior classes on my podcast. I have a podcast on Spotify. I could send it to you guys if you'd like. Um, but this class, we're actually continuing somewhere from last week. Uh, the topic is uh, the limits of rationalism. And I think this is so interesting because where, where a lot of us are, are growing up in this kind of a community, especially in Sephardic, where we think that we're, you know, such Maimonideans. We're so into uh, this rationalist approach. And when you're so into rationalism, you forget that there's a whole nother side of Judaism. There's a whole nother way of relating to God. And if you're like me, and not everybody is like me, but it often feels like there's a lack of emotionality. There's a lack of real depth of connection of the heart to God. Of course, it's important to connect to God through understanding intellectual things. But on the other hand, there might be something lacking if you don't feel like you're experiencing God. So that's what, you know, my, my goal here is not to convince you of anything and not to force you to think anything, but rather really it's to try to open up your perspective to, and your opportunity, if you would like to, to bark up some of these trees like meditation or different other styles of thinking to connect to God through other ways. And, you know, it, to me, it's an amazing thing that we have so many different avenues towards God. So we began last week, we talked about uh, the, uh, this guy, Jonathan Haidt, really brilliant thinker. Um, he talks about the human being almost like a rider on top of an elephant. The elephant is the older parts of the brain, what they call the lizard brains or the reptilian brain. The reptilian brain is the part of the brain that's very animalistic. It's very automatic. You know, it's kind of like the emotions and the limbic system and things like that. The rider is your conscious brain. So the difference between us and animals is that animals are aware. They know. Humans are aware that they're aware. We have self-consciousness. We know that we know. And the most brilliant chidush that Jonathan Hyde makes, he says, the rider evolved to serve the elephant. Elliot, do you think that you are this person, Elliot? Or do you, do you realize that in reality, you're this whole complex system of biology that's going on. And then you develop this crown jewel on the top of your brain, the outermost portion called the cerebral cortex, where you think now I'm this conscious being. So really the most interesting chidush is that that conscious part of yourself is not the main player. He's not the president. The real president is the elephant in you. It's that reptile brain that's deep inside of you. And the best that this rider knows how to do is kind of be like, uh, like a, uh, an advisor. He's able to like whisper in the ear of the elephant, like, oh, come on, you know, go over here. But if you've ever sat in front of a donut and you're starving, there's only a certain amount of time you could really control yourself from eating the donut. And you try to coax yourself. You try to say, maybe I shouldn't. But then you, and the pizza and the, and the Sienna, delicious Sienna dinner. But, but that's the point is that why, why am I telling you all this? Because there's a way of befriending this elephant inside of you. Instead of being pejorative, instead of yelling at it. And the same thing goes with the ego. We discussed a lot about the ego 
in previous weeks. If you remember, we had that story about the Aikido master. It's very similar in kind where a person might try to, you know, transcend their ego, but there's a way of doing it without putting your ego down. Um, and then there were a couple more uh, Jonathan Haidt ideas. And then David Hume, uh, he's an, a brilliant uh, philosopher. He says, reason is and, and ought only to be the slave of the passions. So he thinks that reason and this rational mind is secondary to all this other stuff going on inside of us. And reason and rationalism, it, it might sound so brilliant. You might get into an argument with your spouse. And then the second you, you know, start arguing, it's really post facto. It's like you're just making up arguments to defend your emotions and to defend your actions, not based on what's actually the true logic, but really just based on how you're feeling. And that's the elephant really being in control. Um, you're saying that we don't have self, uh, self-determination? So really it's a great question. I, so the way I would put it is that if you're unaware of this, you're more likely to succumb to the elephant being completely in control. But the more you educate yourself about the elephant, the better equipped you'll be as a conscious human to being in line with that elephant. And there's this, uh, you know, there's this idea in Taoism and the Eastern philosophy where like, it's kind of like getting in the groove of the universe, getting in the groove of the way that the world works. So there's a famous story about a guy who, uh, you know, he, he took out a boat and he went to, to set sail out at sea. And he, somehow all of nature conspired for his benefit. So the, the, um, the ropes that he tied into the wood, they weren't so steady, sturdy in the beginning. And then all of a sudden the wood, as it expanded from the water, kind of made the, the ropes, you know, further tightly bound into the wood. And he, he was catching fish more easily than he thought. And the wind was properly blowing him in the right direction. He didn't even have to row. And that's kind of like the ideal thing that I think the Torah really is asking from us, where by following the, the code of the Torah and following the berit, the Torah is trying to show us this is how you get in line with the universe. This is how you build a society that's already in line with the way that the world works. And unless you know how your elephant works inside, you're not gonna be able to really be in control of yourself. You're gonna to succumb to a lot of these passions as they would call them in the ancient, the ancient times. So I think it's very valuable to talk about these things. And we, we discussed Heights ideas about moral arguments last week that there's different types of morality, moral intuitions that we have. We don't, we're not gonna get into it again, but it's, it's just interesting Welcome. And, uh, you know, if you want to listen to it uh, from last week, you can, but it's just, we discussed the differences between liberals and conservatives. And that very often, it's not that one side is right and one side is wrong. Absolutely. But instead we have different moral intuitions. So somebody on the left cares more about uh, care versus harm and equality versus somebody on the right cares more, cares also about care versus harm and equality, but also cares about proportionality, loyalty, sanctity, and hierarchy. And those are very often the differences. Loyalty, sanctity, and hierarchy are very often the differences between the two sides. Um, and finally, we left off with uh, Jonathan Haidt giving what's called moral dumbfounding, where he gives a, an example. And he says a family has a dog, and uh, the dog is, you know, killed by a car. And the family decides that they, you know, they don't want to waste the dog meat. And they decide, let's uh, cook the dog meat and let's eat the dog. Now, what's your immediate reaction to this? You immediately say like this is no. It's, of course, it's wrong. Because the Torah happens every day. People had sacrifices. 
they brought up the animal and then they killed it. The yeah, but it may be, but it's different when it's your pet. You know, my, my grandpa has a famous like story. They were very close to the animals in the old days. Yeah, no, they were. They were, but I don't think as pets. I no, think I maybe. They have like this code that you know for a while. So and then you said, let's just kill them. My grandpa has a story that he had a little pet chicken that they found when they were very young. And uh, one day it got lost. And then Friday night dinner, my, gra my great grandma brought in the, the chicken for dinner and they all started crying patsy patsy <laughs> but it's just funny because that's our intuition immediately and then when when height would ask these these uh, people he would say what do you think it was right or wrong they were looking at him like are you kidding me of course it's wrong and that's the point so the point is that morality doesn't come from rationalism it doesn't come from the cerebral cortex really it's an intuition which has a lot more to do with your elephant than it does to do with your cerebral cortex so now this idea of eating the dog, uh, somebody who's on the left might have more of a difficulty explaining why it's wrong based on their moral intuitions, because care versus harm, you're not harming anything, it's already dead. And equality, there's no inequality there. But somebody who's on the right and wants to talk about sanctity, now they have a leg to stand on discussing that. Um, so that was a brief rundown of, of uh, last week's class. I want to tell you guys uh, a few minutes of just an interesting uh, food for thought, and then we'll continue with the limits of rationalism. More just food? more food, exactly. <laughs> this is food. This is food not for the elephant, though. This is the food for the rider. So <laughs> enjoy it. Enjoy it for what it is. Um, so this is actually an excerpt from Alan Watts, and I think that it's it's super interesting just to to think in these terms and to expand your mind. And, you know, we have so many different images of God. That's what's so interesting is that you look in the Torah and you have Hashem Ishmael Hama Hashem Shemo. God is like a man of war. And then you have God as this creator God. And then you have God who's loving the widow and the orphan and the stranger. And then you have God who is vengeful. And then the God who is merciful. And there's different ways of relating to God. So here, I want you to think about it this way. We discussed in previous classes where do I end and where does God begin? If God is this infinite being, how could it be that there's room for me? So let's see what, what uh, Alan Watts says. He says, I wonder, I wonder what, would, what you would do if you had the power to dream at night any dream you wanted to dream. So imagine this. And you would, of course, be able to alter your time sense. You might slip, say, 75 years of subjective time into eight hours of sleep. So let's say you could do this on any given night. You would, I suppose, start out by fulfilling all your wishes. You could design by yourself and for yourself what would be the most ecstatic life you could think of. Love affairs and banquets and dancing girls, wonderful journeys, gardens, music beyond belief. And then after a couple of months of this sort of thing, at 75 years per night, you'd be getting a little bit you know, of a taste for something different. Right. And you would move on over to an adventurous dimension, maybe, where there were certain dangers involved and the thrill of dealing with dangers. And you could rescue princesses from dragons and you could go on dangerous journeys and you could make wonderful explosions and blow them up. Eventually, um, you would get into maybe some contest with enemies and different things like that. And after you've done that for some time, you'd think up a new wrinkle to forget that you were dreaming so that you'd think it was all for real and to be anxious about it because it'd be so great when you woke up, right? You would want the thrill of it. After so many nights, let's say you could do it for an infinite amount that I do get bored of winning the lottery every single night. 
you probably get bored of, of having all your dreams fulfilled. And you would start introducing this little wrinkle of anxiety into it. That's what he's saying. And then you'd say, well, you know, like children who dare each other on things, how far out could you get? I love this. What could you take? What dimension of being lost, of abandonment of your power, what dimension of that could you stand? Could you ask yourself this because you know, and I'm sorry, you could ask yourself this because you know that you'd eventually wake up and it's, you're, you're okay with going really far out there and losing so much of your power and being in such a vulnerable situation as a limited human being. And then, you know, it's just going to end at a certain point. And then I come back to this infinity. After you had gone through doing this, you see for some time, you'd suddenly find yourself sitting around in this room right now with all your personal involvements, problems, et cetera, talking with me right now. If this were the case, just imagine that that were the case. Imagine you were this infinite being that was capable of dreaming all these things. You might at some point in that infinite space of possibilities of dreaming up all these dreams every single night, you might end up somewhere here like this right now, which is unbelievable. How do you know that's not what you're doing? Could be because after all, what would you do if you were God? If you were what there is, the self, which is quoted in some of the Eastern texts, the basic texts of the Easterners, one of them starts out saying in the beginning was the self and looking around that self said, I am. And thus it is that everyone to this day, when asked who is there, they say it is I. So why is that so interesting? Because we all have this idea of in creation, but in the beginning, according Kabbalistically, there was this idea of God was there, right? Uh, what do we say? And we say, He was all alone. And we have this idea of God creating something in order to have a relationship with it. Or, you know, a little bit and playing hide and seek with himself in order to have a relationship with himself. Of course, part of the earlier classes that we had was ineffability, that it's impossible to really put into words these things because it's so, you know, it's so mystical. It's so beyond us that uh, to try to put it into words really limits the truth of what we're saying, because the truth is the experience itself. You say, what is this? If you say it's cup, it's not cup. It's just, that's what it is. It's not a cup. A cup is just the sound. What is it? Well, you know what it is. I don't have to spell it out for you. You know, so in the same way, what are you? It's a, it is a cup. But the word cup is not what it is. Words aren't things. Uh, what is it? We have no idea. What is it? We have no idea. That's the answer. We have, we have no clue. We, we, we could look at it from different elements. We could say, okay, from music, we had some weird thing. From physics, it's these subatomic particles. From a literature perspective, it's, it symbolizes the yearning for, for truth and water in the world. You know, who knows what you could say about it, but the truth is they're all relative realities. What is it? We can never actually state. That's the mystery of reality. It's an unbelievable thing. All right, so I'll just I'll finish off before I go too crazy with this. For if you were God, and in this sense that you knew everything, and you were completely transparent with yourself through and through, you would be bored. That's unbelievable because if looking at it from another way, we push technology to its furthest possible development and we get instead of a dial telephone on one's desk, 
a more complex system of buttons. And one touch would give you anything you wanted. Imagine, right? You had Aladdin's lamp. You would eventually have to introduce a button labeled surprise because all perfectly known futures are past, right? You know, in Tole, you're playing Tole. And then you're like, you're ready. It's, it's not a medis, but you know, you kind of, the guy didn't win the medis, but it's obvious the guy's going to win. What do you do? You stop playing. You don't have to roll the dice and keep playing. It's impossible statistically for the guy to win. It's a predetermined outcome. It's no longer fun to play. That's the point. Because all perfectly known futures are past. They have happened virtually. It is only the true future that is a surprise. So if you were God, you would say to yourself, man, get lost. So people might get very offended when I say, oh, you are God. I don't, I don't, of course, I don't mean that in a literal sense. I don't mean that your ego is God. What I do mean, though, is that there's this tremendous mystery, not just about what is that cup, but the, also the question is, what are you? Who are you in reality? And there's different ways of talking. Are you, do you end where your skin ends? And we talked about this last week, that it's impossible to speak about the individual separate from their environment, right? You have to speak about, and when you're talking about a black dot, did anybody ever just see a black dot? No, it's always a black dot on a white page. So to say, oh, what is it? It's a black dot. You're not really done the whole story. In reality, it's black dot white page. So the same thing goes for Michael Franco. Michael Franco is not Michael Franco. This is a social construct. What you're looking at, what you're hearing now, this crazy person saying all these things is not Michael Franco. It's Michael Franco universe. Just like in biology, we know you have to look at the whole ecosystem to look at that organism. The same thing goes for every individual. And that's in space. And then in time, it's the same thing. I was born in 1995 on January 2nd. But did I begin then? Well, I was an embryo before that. Did I begin with, with the dirty look in my dad's eye when he first met my mom? Or did I begin with the, my grandpa's dirty look? Or did I begin at the Big Bang? Because every single event leading from the Big Bang till that birth of mine, you know, everything was fundamental for me to be here. So you are, in that sense, literally infinity. But obviously, it's hard to think in those terms when you're walking down the street, you got to make a business deal. But there's, there's a beautiful thing that a lot of these spiritual guys will say, and I think it's exactly in line with, with halakha, which is that a really swinging human being, in the words of Alan Watts, is a person who is capable of dwelling on two levels simultaneously at once. A person who's able to say, out on the one hand, I'm this infinity. I am this empty space behind all of it. I am because it's impossible to really, you know, talk about it. It's they, they talk about it as nothingness. Like they say, yes, that the Torah was sorry, that the world was created ex nihilo, something from nothing. Well, that's constantly going on right now, because what what do you see behind your eyes? Is that is that black? No, it's not black. It's just it's just nothing. Right. It's just nothingness. And constantly in order to have somethingness, there has to be nothingness. And hence this idea of yesh me'ayin and yin and yang, all these mystical traditions are converging on the same thing. So a lot of people might get offended if I'm quoting too many of these Eastern philosophers. This guy, Aldous Huxley, has a brilliant book called um, The Perennial Philosophy, where he shows you that all these traditions throughout the world have the same mystical experience that they converge upon, which is the fundamental oneness of all. And to me, that shows you that you're, we have the ability to look at everything, of course, through the lens of the Torah, but to understand where are these other traditions coming from? What are they trying to tell us? And how does the Torah inform on that? So hopefully in future classes, we're going to delve more into Kabbalah. 
I'm going to try to look at, um, what's his name? Gershom Shalom. I'm going to think I'm going to try to read some of his stuff because apparently he's really good. Also, I'm going to try to read some of uh, Rav Shagad, who's talking a lot about postmodernist thought. So we'll get into that stuff as well. But to me, this stuff is really just like super interesting because when, you, when talking about God, you also have to talk about yourself in relation to God. And when talking about the cosmos, you don't know what the cosmos is unless you're talking about me in relation to that cosmos. So I gave you this thought experiment about having all these dreams because something we said last week is Harambam says, God is hu hayodeya, vehu hayadua, vehu atzma. God is the knower, the knowledge, and the known, right? The known itself. So it's the, the, the knowledge, the knower, and the known. I think that's the way to interpret it. The, another way of talking about it is God is the dream, God is the dreamer, and God is that which is being dreamt up. What does that mean? Well, it's so interesting because, of course, you know that famous question that Harambam raises, right? What does Harambam say? He says, how could it be that I have free will? If God is omniscient, God knows everything. God knows that what you're going to have for breakfast tomorrow. Do you really have free will to eat the Cheerios with the banana for heart healthy diet? Uh, who knows? Who knows? But the point is that Harambam makes it so, it's so profound, but you might miss it, is that this whole idea of is that what you think of as knowledge as a human being is nothing like God's knowledge. God's knowledge is of another order that you can't even comprehend. And now he doesn't just leave it at that because if you left it at that, you're gonna be a little bit lost. But the beauty is he adds this thing. God is the knowledge and the knower and the known. He's all of it. So you don't even know what that means because how can I know something unless there's a me and the something to know it? So it's, a, it's such an intimacy of the knowledge that this leads to what a lot of Kabbalists might believe in called panentheism. Anybody ever hear panentheism as opposed to pantheism? I think we discussed it briefly last week, if I'm not mistaken, where it's the idea. Pantheism is an idea that God is everything. God is nature. God is all this stuff. And that, that's why it kind of warrants people sometimes worshiping nature. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying God is literally nature. What I will say that what panentheism says is that God is in everything and everything is in God, right? So from that perspective, everything around you really is part of this infinity of what God is. It's not limited to this, but it's a part of it. And then you start thinking, you're right, if God is really all of it, and then there's this, if there's really this unity to all of it, then why do I see it as all separate? Well, that's the point is when you have a mystical experience, you start to see it all as one and you start seeing these separations as kind of dissolving. And there's different layers of reality, different layers at which you can analyze this world. But to me, it's so interesting to have this thought experiment of what if, what if you right now are a dream in the mind of God? That's what it means to understand. God is dreaming you up and God in a way wants you to become something, or maybe does, maybe just God loves you for what you are. Like, you know, in the, in the same way as God creates a cloud or God creates anything, any phenomenon of nature, he doesn't look at it and say, Oh, this cloud is a little too mushy over there. It's a little too streaky over here. No, it's just a cloud. It's beautiful as it is a flower, whatever, you know, any trees, he doesn't say oh, that one's too short. That one's too long. 
It just is. There's a, and it's kind of this idea of balancing those two. Balancing, no, I'm perfect just for being here, just for being a phenomenon of reality. But on the other hand, that doesn't preclude and prevent you from being able to grow and be able to become something. And you kind of have to balance these two things, I think. Um, but very often during the mystical experience, it's all that one thing. It's all that this moment right now is perfection. Despite all the suffering, despite all the evil in the world, it's a very extreme statement. But at the same time, that's what it means to dwell at two levels at once. Now, a lot of people will say, I don't understand. If, you, if you're so much in this mindset where everything is so perfect, then why are you going to go and fix the world? Why are you going to go even help relieve suffering? Why are you going to go help people? It doesn't make sense. Well, the answer is that the natural consequence of thinking in this way, and this is kind of, you're going to have to trust me on this. Not that I know, not that I've been there. But the natural consequence, apparently, according to all these mystics, is that when you are at inner peace, when you have this equanimity, as they say, the natural consequence is compassion. The natural consequence is love. It's the ability to look out at the world and say, this is what there now is to do. What else could I possibly be doing other than helping out all these people? Because just like I am this face of God, so is everybody else. And me helping them is not, oh, look at me, I have to go help them. No, 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 it's, I'm helping myself in a very real way. And you'll hear that from a lot of these, these people that are really doing uh, acts of chesed is they're saying, it could have been me. That to me is such a profound statement. So when I'm walking through the hospital and I see some kind of deranged patient, I'm going into psychiatry. If I look at them and I say, look at this crazy person that I, I completely otherize them. And I say that they're over there and I'm over here. I'm making them even sicker just by looking at them like, oh, you're, you're strange. You need help. Obviously, you got to take this with a grain of salt. They need to take their meds. They need to take their meds. But at a certain point during the therapy process, I think it's very important to acknowledge with the patient or with the person sitting across from you, I see you as infinity, the same as me. And no matter who you are, I think you have that spark of infinity in you. And that to me is, is really at the core of all this stuff. Um, we, so we mentioned Harambam. Now, there's this idea, Maimonidean idea that God doesn't have emotions, right? We know that famously Harambam says that. You can't say God has emotions because if you say God has emotions, what does that mean? He's just this fickle-minded being. You're personifying him. It's, it's almost like Avodah because you're projecting your ego onto God. And of course, that's ridiculous, right? Well, the, the point that I heard made by Rabbi Foreman once, which I think is very profound, is that maybe God does have love. But maybe that love is so much far beyond the love that you comprehend in this limited lifetime that your love is the analogy and God's love is really the real love. And a lot, some of these Kabbalists, which I don't, I don't think you have to go this far, but they'll take it really far. And they'll say, when it says in the Torah, it's Ba'elokim He, it really is the finger of God. Or, or when it says, God, Yad Hashem did something, it's literally the hand of God. They say, what are you talking about? And they'll say, oh, no, don't worry. It's not like your hand. Your hand is the analogy. God's hand is something far beyond your comprehension. And on one spiritual plane, he has a hand, whatever that means. But your hand is the analogy. I don't think you have to go that far. But I just want to impress upon you this idea that, of course, when I say all these platitudes sometimes, I say, oh, God is love, and then all this stuff, infinity, yada, yada, yada. You have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and realize 
of course, it's not literally what it is. You can't put it into words ever. But maybe what we're tasting on this realm of love is one sixtieth or one billionth of you know, or one in infinity of what God really is. So I think that's a that's an important point to make. Um, and you know, from here now, unless anybody has any questions, we'll move on to the rest of the limits of rationalism. Someone said that um, we can understand God, so they try to put it into human terms, mm -hmm. love, because we can understand that exactly. But you know, so why not have that uh, figures into what you're saying. Mm -hmm. 100%. That's the Hakam. You say, Just like God is, is merciful and loving, so too you should be merciful and loving. And, uh, you know, I think from a philosophical point of view, you can understand it exactly like this, that God's love is so infinite. It's not that he's not loving. It's that to call your, if, if you think your love is like comparable to God's, you're, you're out to lunch. Because God's love is so far beyond my comprehension that I can't even comprehend it. And then for me to call mine love would, would be diminishing his love, but it's okay. We'll allow it because we're humans. And maybe we're tasting just a little smidgen of what God's love really is. And that's a beautiful thing. You know, to, it's, a, it's a very, you have to have a lot of humility to say that, to acknowledge that whatever I am and whatever I have in this lifetime is really only a fraction of whatever infinity is. But again, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to realize like, okay, you know, God is playing this game as me almost. That's the one way you could think of it. And, and I don't say game in a way to write it off. It's not important. So you could compare it to somebody playing the violin. Right? Somebody playing the violin. They're playing the violin. Does the fate of the world depend on them playing the violin? No, the world's going to keep turning, even if they uh, miss a chord. But it's important. You know, they're playing a violin in front of a lot of people, and they want to play it the best way but it's play. So I think that's what the Hachamim, a lot of the time they'll say, this idea of Shashua, that God is playing by creating the world. And what's the Shodesh of Shashua? Sha'a, when we just learning of Rabbi Hittari, that God did not turn towards the Korban of Kain, right? So Sha'a means to turn towards. So Shashua means to turn towards, to turn towards. What does that mean? It's like a spiral of some sorts. It really means that it's something that's infinitely valuable. So people ask, like, all right, why did God create the world? What is the meaning of life? The answer is that if you were in the mystical state, you wouldn't be asking that question because it would be so obvious that the intrinsic value of the world is right now. This moment is so inherently beautiful and meaningful that the question is not even a question. That's the answer to that. And of course, the answer is almost like a cop-out because unless you're experiencing it in that moment, you won't exactly understand, but it's something to strive towards and to maybe take solace in that, that there is a meaning to life, but it's not a meaning that you could put your finger on. It's an experience. Um, so I, I, I don't know if you guys have any more questions, but I think uh, that, oh, this idea of Shashua, it's because it's intrinsically valuable, this idea of play is so important. Because now, now hear me out with this. I'm not saying life is not important and it shouldn't be taken sincerely, but you don't have to take it so seriously. This is the way Alan Watts puts it, that life could be sincere. It doesn't have to be so serious. Meaning you don't have to be like very uptight about everything all the time and scared and anxious and depressed and just realizing that everything is temporary, everything is transient, 
And it's in a way, it is a dream that's going on because whether or not you like it, you're going to begin and you're going to end at a certain point. And your life is finite and you're a limited human. And you could say, oh, that's so depressing. Everything is going to burn and die. But that, that's quite the opposite of what I think the real point is. It's the most liberating thing in the world because the way that some other people put it is it's like taking the welcome, Dr. Nasser. It's like taking the course, not for credit. What does that mean? It's like, you know, you're, you're, you're taking a course in college and, the, and you're just there to learn. You're just there to enjoy the material. You're not being tested on it. Nothing to actually you're just there to be there. Like we're here. Like we are here right now. You're not being tested we're on this information. Yes. You're here for the food also, but yeah. that's, you know, but that's part of the play. Yeah. Listen, we got to get you in here somehow. <laughs> well, I think yeah. Ah, beautiful. So I think the idea of Neshama, based on all that we've been saying, is that you already are this infinity behind all of it. And it gets a little dicey when you start talking about time and space, where we know from, from physics that space and time are actually one. There's this idea of space-time. You can't even talk about space and time. Space-time. There's this fabric of space-time. And somehow we're riding along some wave of space-time. And, you know, it's right at this very moment is all of infinity. And, but we, we experience time as an absolute. But in reality, time is something that is not a sturdy thing. It's not something that is absolutely there. It's really something that we experience just on our human level. So does that answer your question? Um, so I'm thinking like physically, there is a beginning and an end. Yes, from your so, experience. Right. And that's what we experience. So that's what it is for us. So I think a lot of these mystics will say that when you have the mystical experience, you'll, you'll have the realization that the whole time that you've been going through this life, there's also been this olam haba concurrently with it. Meaning what you thought was, oh, I have to wait this lifetime out in order for me to get to that next stage of being in bliss. You'll realize during that mystical experience, the bliss has been there the whole time. And when you're staring evil in the face, even that was part of the bliss. You just didn't realize it at the time because you were playing a game with yourself. And that's why I think this is so funny and fun. But also, even in the toughest of times, this idea of it's sincere. When the guy's playing a violin, it's sincere. He means it. He cares about the violin. He cares about making beautiful music. But he doesn't get so hung up on this idea of like, oh, what if I mess up? Or, or oh, I did mess up. Now I have to beat up on myself. That's anxiety, depression, whatever, that, you know, either based on the future or based on the past. So the reason why I think all this stuff is so valuable for me on a practical level is now when I go about my daily life, it removes a lot of the seriousness of it. And you could be much more of a lighthearted person and you're more easily able to what we said earlier to dwell on two levels at once. You could be that swinging human being that Alan Watts talks about. You could be that person that's on the one hand, completely equanimous, completely at peace, no matter what's going on at one level. And then at the other level, you're staring the patient in the face who's dying and your heart is absolutely torn to shreds for that person. And both are true at the same time. And part of all this mystical stuff is paradox and being okay with contradiction and paradox. And I think this is, you know, exactly in line with, with that. And, you know, uh, one more point before we move on to source eight over here from limits of rationalism is that Alan Watts very, very often likes to talk about this idea of life is not a journey. It's a dance. 
right? So when you're not, let me let me pull up the uh, the quote. Let's see here. Just because we have the luxury of being online here. Let's see. Michael, smile. Oh. <laughs> here we go. <laughs> there you go. Putting me on the spot here. Thank you. you I appreciate it. Oh, here, let me it's find the quote here. Action, there we go. I love it. Hey, I appreciate it. Oh, listen, my, my family be proud of me for once. Okay, here we go. You know what? Sorry, let me pull it up on my documents. I think I have. Just to do it justice. I don't want it to be something that's. Uh... They said jump in any time. Let's see. Okay. Let me see. It's close, it's close enough. It's close enough. It's close enough. Not it. Sorry about that. You know, we could just we could just do it next week if I find it. Um, so we could just move on. But take my word for it. It's in line with all of this stuff is this idea that really at its core, life doesn't have to be experienced as something that is for the sake of, you know, a uh, particular end goal. Now, it's beautiful to set those those guideposts up for ourselves. But in reality, it doesn't have to be constantly that we need to become more than we are. And by guideposts, you mean uh, it's vote or or any goals of growth that you want us to psychology or whatever you want to think of it as. But it's to me, there's there's a certain purity of living life in this way where you don't have to constantly be changing and growing and that you could have times where you do care about that stuff. But there are also times to just enjoy the dance and just enjoy the music, right? So hopefully next week we'll, uh, we'll quote um, Alan Watts about life being a journey. Uh, so now let's continue with the idea of uh, the limits of rationalism, right? So let's, I'm going to read for you now this, this uh, Dr. Schatz. He's a, um, a professor from YU, from Yeshiva University, and he talks about uh, the limits of rationalism. I think the title of his article is something along the lines of, um, "Oh, the the overexamined life is not worth living." That if you overexamine your life, you're too analytical and too rational, it's not worth living. Now, here's something that he says. In my study, he said, "I come to appreciate that I lack ad adequate grounds for all sorts of things I take for granted in my life: the regularity of nature." the reality of the physical world. Yet when I, when I exit, those intellectual infirmities have not the slightest influence on my belief system. So he could be a professor and thinking philosophically about why is there something rather than nothing? And, you know, why, why, is there, why do the laws of physics cohere all the time? Why should there be a coherent set of uh, laws of physics? A philosophical skeptic, someone who casts doubt on our grounds for these and other common beliefs, for example, the belief in other sentient creatures, belief in the trustworthiness of memory, right? Because how do you prove that uh, somebody else also is sentient? 
It could just be all a game. And you're this is a solipsistic argument. You're really the only sentient being. Everybody else is just there. Um, and a person, this idea of memory, maybe you just your memories are implanted in you every morning. These are things you can't disprove. Yet they don't really have such a big deal on our daily life. So this person cannot live his skepticism Hume holds. Right. So this is very much centered on David Hume, who, like we said, from Jonathan Haidt, says that, uh, let me just pull up the exact quote again. Reason is and ought only to be the slave of the passions and can never pretend to any other office than to serve and obey them. Right. So reason is a good servant and a lousy master. Right. So so part of Hume's philosophy seems to be about that. Hume taught us, in effect, that it is a vice to be too rational. Right? It's not good to be too rational, to hold out for rigorous arguments in all walks of life. Only a mad person would want to conduct his or her life with complete Spock like logicality. Anybody ever see Star Trek? Right. So if you're if you're being like uh, like Spock all the time, that's not really a, a way of living. It's not a way of being. Um, we are possessed not of minds alone, but of hearts, emotions, needs, instincts, and habits. And we inhabit social contexts. Obviously, without the use of reason, anarchy enters. Still, in most areas of belief and practice, we don't and shouldn't let philosophical worries get to us. Right? So there's a way of putting a distance between all these interesting rationalistic approaches and just a very raw experience of what it's like to be a human being living in the world with all your social connections, with all the love in the world and with just being part of a society. Now you can think for all these different about all these different scenarios of, of rationalism of like, am I really this person, the same person I was yesterday? And am I really just this, uh, you know, am I, am I some kind of automaton who knows what, what could be going on? At the end of the day, it doesn't have to get to us, doesn't have to worry us. And it seems like this is kind of putting the mind at bay, which I love because part of meditation, part of experiencing this mystical experience is allowing the mind to quiet itself down. Right. So a lot of us will will get all. I mean, for me personally, maybe I'm projecting. I get very philosophical sometimes and I get very worried about okay, what is truth if truth is this then I should be doing this, but otherwise maybe I should do that. And you start to realize at a certain point, no amount of worrying and no amount of thinking about things in advance will actually produce such a different result. And after a certain amount, obviously you should plan ahead for certain things, but very often we overcorrect for that in today's society. We're way too anxious and we're way too... But can we yeah. use our rationalism? Um, which, yes. Can we use our rationalism to come to the conclusion that we're um overcorrecting in certain cases and adjust for that for sure but the problem is isn't that the power of rationalism? i'm glad you said that because i wanted to say exactly this that the if you have a stormy ocean like we said last week the best way to quiet down that ocean is not to take a hammer and start hitting the water because what's that going to do that's just going to keep adding waves and adding more disturbances to the water the best thing to do is let it be let the water be and it'll calm itself down the same thing with the mind so I find that being rational with the mind, up to a point, it works. But then when I keep on, um, what's the word? Entertaining. When I keep entertaining so many of my philosophical beliefs and thoughts and questions, it automatically gets out of hand. So then I just come back to the breath. Like, I don't know if this just proves it or it's just ironic. Yeah. It seems like 
the only reason you're saying that is through a rational thought process that you had about it. Yes. Can but we, so we could use rationalism to explain the the but you can't really say that because really my rationalism is post facto to the elephant in me, the elephant in me who feels very at ease when he's mindful and meditating. And then the rationalist. Is that true or could we, could we rationalize why those emotions exist there? You could, you could always purpose? rationalize 100%. Right. But, but the point is. Can we explain what, rationalism with, uh, with the elephant? What do you mean? Meaning I could use my rationalism to to probably explain any aspect of the elephant that we encounter mm. um all the impulses or the feeling or the emotion evolutionarily 100 percent. i can probably rationalize all of that using my rational faculties yes can i is it possible to do that the other way around like who's to say that um the the elephant is really superior like you've been saying it a lot <laughs> so far, but i don't know uh. if you've really shown it I, mean, I don't think it's superior. Only, I, mean, I, I definitely maybe don't it's think it's superior. I'm for a rational explanation. For uh, that's funny. Yeah. So that's the thing. I don't. I don't think it's superior. I think it's the main player. I think it evolved first, and I think that the the, the cerebral cortex and all this rationalism evolved for the sake of serving the elephant. And we we get into all these philosophical things as a way of pleasing the the elephant. So my elephant is most pleased. I find when I'm able to sit in equanimity and when I'm able to quiet down the rider, because the rider is often on overdrive. It, it's, you know, it has its sword and shield in hand from the day from having to navigate all things with my brain. What do I give this patient? What do I give that guy? How do I talk to this person in a, in a nice way? And, but at the same time, when I want to sit and meditate, the only way to really do that is to stop talking. But if I keep on entertaining every thought with another thought and I have to keep responding, it's never going to end because there's, it always is going to continue. So at a certain point, yeah. yeah. Let, me, let me just say something. So the, the elephant or your subconscious is really in control. Uh, that's, you know, so it's not an even thing where you could have either or, or, or you could be rationalistic or non-rationalistic. You know, the, the, like, like, uh, like the architecture of the mind, the cerebral cortex overlies, you know, the, the deeper portions of the mind. Um, and which are actually in control of your, you know, vital um, processes. So clearly, you know, the elephant is, has the power, but the elephant cannot express itself. So the rational facilities allow us to, you know, it's like the bridge, you know, and it allows us to, to try to understand the elephant, try to verbalize what the elephant, you know, wants or try to figure it out. The elephant's not going to figure out the rational. That's not how it works. Like that's the opposite. That's not, exactly. you know, the elephant's not involved in figuring anything out. It it's just so feels, yeah, yeah. It, it doesn't, it doesn't think like that. It's not planning. It's not trying yeah. to understand anything. Exactly. I think that's perfect. The emotion comes first, right? Let's say you, let's say you get into an argument with somebody. You might convince yourself that you really care about the truth and all this stuff, but really you're driven by emotion. The first thing you're driven by is my, and this was the whole point of last week that the moral intuitions, my intuition makes me feel that this guy is wrong. And now because I'm smart, I'm going to use my cerebral cortex to prove him wrong and shoot him down. But the only reason I did that was because I was motivated to do so by my moral intuitions. I get the irony here. I get the irony is that right now I'm speaking as my rational mind is speaking. But that's just something we're gonna have to. We can't really avoid it unless you want to just uh, 
meditate together. You know, it's, we, we spoke about that in previous weeks that Lao Tzu says, he who says it does not know, he who knows it does not say. So what am I doing here telling you all this stuff? Well, he also wrote the whole book, the Tao Te Ching. That's the point, is that despite that fact that you can't actually ever say what is reality, it's okay to talk about things. It's not, it's not the worst thing in the world, as long as you know that you're not stating absolute truth. And that's something I always try to tell you guys, like I, I acknowledge. What I'm telling you is not the absolute truth, but the way that a lot of these Eastern philosophies will put it is that it's like a finger pointing at the moon. If you're only looking at the finger, the hope is eventually you'll follow where that finger is pointing towards the moon. So the, one of my hopes is that some of these philosophical, rational things and mystical things will open you towards looking past the finger towards the moon, towards that mystical experience, and it'll open you up. It'll become a channel inside of you. All right. So uh, let's finish this quote from Dr. Schatz. Philosophy has its place among the truly enjoyable, challenging, and edifying endeavors in our culture, but it is not the arbiter of all we think and do. What we do in our study and what we do in the rest of our lives are often not commensurate because the study is the smaller room in life. Without question, the essay that has stayed with me the longest is William James' The Will to Believe. James' argument was that our passional nature not only lawfully may, but must decide an option between propositions whenever it is a genuine option and cannot by its nature be decided on intellectual grounds. So he's saying, what William James is saying is you need to acknowledge the fact that your intuition and your emotion has to play a role in your deciding things. And it cannot only be your intellect. And if you think it's only your intellect, you're already wrong. You really think that's such a thing as uh, intuition? Isn't it really some of your faculties that understand what's going on in your environment? What do you mean by faculties? Observing and uh, things like that, that gives you that intellect or the reasoning to, to have that intuition. But, but you have emotions. Of course you have emotions. So, so the point is that based on a lot of height stuff, which I tried to prove last week, um, you know, I, I, he, he really does justice in his books. So you'll get a much better explanation. But he shows that in his view, morality is fundamentally, primarily intuitive. And it's not a, and he has a big mahlokat with a lot of these other thinkers. But he proves it based on these ideas of moral dumbfounding and things like that, where it, with the example with the, uh, with the dog being hit by a car or the example of a, a family cutting up an American flag and then using it as rags. You're not harming anybody and there's, there's no inequality there. Calm, thinking about it, if you're on an island starving... Oh, no problem. Food, so you don't have any problem. But why? Because the sanctity of your life. Okay. Yeah, you know that, but, but it's still... It's the, the example that I gave is still grotesque of eating right. your pet so dog. It's all conditional. It's conditional if it's grotesque or not grotesque. It's conditional, but it's, it's part of the conditioning is because of the moral intuitions that we have. But That's I, his think, argument. I think what you're getting at is, is the moral intuition um, really a genuine intuition mm -hmm. or is it um, a buildup of all these rational mm. uh, thought processes, but, you know, we're, we're trained or we're developed to uh, give those intuitions immediately. Yeah. It, but it could have, you know, developed. It sounds based like right of, now you're rationalizing. These, <laughs> yes, I might be, but yeah. what I'm saying, 
but my point is say, that they did experiments who's to say whether I'm rationalizing or whether my rationalization for it is actually the primary thing well so that's the thing they've done experiments I, mean, I am able to rationalize so they did a great I'm experiment able to rationalize it yeah i mean and and there there is a rational explanation so no they they proved it i'll tell you how they proved it they hooked up an eeg an electroencephalogram is a special you know uh electrodes on people's brains and they liberals versus conservatives and they showed them images of words like clinton or bush and like based on the different word Immediately, they, they saw their emotional response to it. Right. And it, it was an emotional response. That's the point. Yes, but I'm not saying it's not an emotional response, but the emotional response could be the development of uh, prior rational. Um, but well, like we're saying, thoughts. even the brain itself, we know that we didn't have rationalism until after the cerebral cortex evolved. We had emotion prior to that. As a species? As a species. We know that. We know right. from other animals that they don't okay, have rational that's, capacities. That's fine. But do other animals have um, moral intuitions? I wouldn't say that they have moral intuitions. So, it's more of a... So why, why wouldn't other animals it's, have it's moral a, intuitions if they have... The so the only reason we call it moral intuitions is because I think of the interface between the, that stuff and the rationalism. You need both in order to have one. But if it's just the, the emotion, you wouldn't call it intuition. You just call it emotion. I think intuition comes when you when you start trying to translate emotion into rational terms. That's the best way I can do it. Society, if you're in China, nothing wrong with eating that dog. They eat dogs all the time. Mm -hmm. You would say it's not acceptable. One hundred percent. That's and and part of his thing though is that these are universal moral intuitions where the the societies agree on the foundations of the things, but not necessarily on the the content of the things itself themselves it could be subjective it could 100 percent. that's why even within the same country we have disagreements let alone between countries like you're saying so even within the same country you'll have a liberal say one thing and a conservative say another thing but the moral intuitions at the same time are still very much there um if we want we could close with the words of hanambam uh just to show you that hanambam really uh, is even though he was a rationalist in a lot of ways he did have this side of him that was very like I ask you a question Please. here. Sure. Isn't our Jewish philosophy, our upbringing, the way we've been trained to um, understand our motivations and our impulses that we have, except, you know, our, our, our impulses, you know, we want to eat, we want to do this, we want to do that, you know, our base drives and realize that we need to mitigate that with our, our thinking mind. Mm. Uh, and you know try to live harmoniously in society um despite you know again your, your base instincts which are really just you know to kill people have sex eat you know do do the you know the main things you want to do and get what you want in a selfish way uh isn't you know isn't it understood that we're supposed to kind of moderate our our desires um you know using uh, well, parenting, obviously, and socialization of, of people, of humans, to, to become, you know, uh, competent members of society who, who can understand, you know, right from wrong, what's acceptable behavior, what's not acceptable behavior. I mean, like, the way this is being said, it's like, oh, well, you know, the, we have to respect the animal. And that's like, really, the, the epitome of being human is to so, have like, yeah. impulses but really the epitome of being human is not that is the epitome of being an right. animal 
I'm glad you asked this. Human, yes. <laughs> is to have a rational mind. Exactly. Sorry, Robert, we're done right now. So the, the, I'm glad you asked this. The beginning of the class, we, we spoke about the whole reason I'm saying all this is so that you can be a better advisor towards your elephant. If you want to be the best Jew you can be, if you want to be the best person that's keeping all the mitzvot and all that, if you try to force the elephant in one direction, it's not going to work. But if you train yourself to understand how the elephant works, you're going to be the best communicator you can be. You understand what I mean? So like the point of studying all this is not just to bash rationalism. It's to say, notice already that it is secondary and it's a good advisor and it's a good servant and it's a lousy master. So if you try to be the master over your Yetzir Hara in that way, you don't work with it, you're going to end up like an ascetic and it's not going to last. But if you are a person that's able to befriend your elephant, you become a lot better at you know, communicating with it and being the best person you can be. All right. Any, if, uh, I, I don't want to keep anybody too late, but thank you for staying these extra minutes. Thank you for coming. And uh, really, it was a pleasure. If, if, you, if I don't have your number, you can give me your number and I would love to, to text you for next week if you want to be interested in coming again. Um, and thank you guys. Really, if you have any more questions, you can ask me next week or uh, I hope you enjoyed. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Mike. Thank you, Doc. Tell Dr. Nash.